Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Philip von Lamerson is the CEO and co-founder of Squake. Travel and transport are responsible for 20% of emissions worldwide. With the global population growing, this footprint is only going to increase in the next decade, unless we do something about it now. Squake are advocating for short and long-term change by building a platform that makes sustainable travel and transport accessible to everyone. They do this by focusing on three main steps. One, working with businesses to accurately calculate emissions so consumers can understand the impact of their travel decisions. Two, reducing or avoiding emissions through alternative means or better modes of travel. And three, compensating for any remaining emissions by investing in carbon projects. In this episode, Philip explains more about sustainability in travel and what needs to change, his journey building Squake, the hardest part about being a founder, and his advice for hiring as a startup. Hey, Philip, thanks for coming to the show. How are you? Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. So today we are chatting about Squake and sustainability within the travel and logistics sectors. Um, and I guess first wanted to understand the, the current landscape a bit better. So I was hoping like, if you can give a, uh, an idea of when it comes to climate change and, and, and carbon emissions, like how much does travel and transport contribute to like the overall kind of like global picture? Yeah, very good question. Um, and to be honest, this is also one of the reasons why we focus so much on that segment. Um, and there is a bunch of other segments which need to be solved as well. Um, but uh, travel and transport or, or the mobility sector uh, overall emits about 20% of the overall uh, emissions worldwide. And um, that trend, unfortunately, when you look at the relative share, even expands. So um, by 2030, we're talking about a quarter of overall emissions um, because other industries and other segments um, are better uh, and excelling in uh, reducing their carbon emissions. I was, that was going to be a later question, but as you just touched on it, I was going to say, I, I assume this problem is only going to get worse with growing populations, more people, uh, more people means like more food, more goods, more produce needed. Also, more people probably going to be traveling around for holidays and stuff like the stresses on these two sectors is only going to increase. Yeah, it will. And um, you mentioned one part of uh, uh, the picture, which is travel. There is a bunch of um, countries and even continents which are just... Um, just waking up to to uh, to travel eventually, um, so that will see a significant boost. On the other hand, um, in logistics, it, the whole world is connected, so the supply chains uh, are spanning the whole globe, and eventually uh, that will not stop. So uh, we need more transparency around what the implications of that mean, and um, we also need ways um, to cover the time gap between uh, us having emission-free free planes, uh, emission-free carbon supply chains. Um, and uh, that gap needs to be uh, bridged by a lot of transparency. Um, on, on the other hand, also 
carbon compensations, which we will talk about in a second. And uh, this is probably a really simple question, but in terms of like the, the number one root cause of, of the the fact these two industries relate um, to like 20% of, of global emissions, is that really down to like the volume and type of fuel being used for travel and transport? I mean, eventually everything what moves requires energy. And if you break that down, what the source is, most of that is still based on fossil fuels. So short answer is yes. And um, I guess starting to look at then like how we influence change, positive change, and how we start to solve this problem. And I I was kind of thinking about this into it breaking down to like two kind of layers, which is one consumers, like the people using these sectors, and then businesses, like the, the providers within these sectors. From a consumer perspective, like what needs to change? Like, are we still at a point, do you think, where it's about awareness and education and people aren't aware of the impact that taking that flight across the global will have? Um, or, or is it something else that we need to now start working on at a consumer level? Yeah. Um, so I think the first part really is creating awareness uh, and putting it into context. What is the actual implication of you taking a flight or you uh, using specific other means of transport um, to an extent X, Y, Z, right? And um, that is only the first part. The second part is through offering that information. So as a consumer, everything starts basically with information. And to be honest, uh, that is the starting point. But we see in a lot of uh, players in the industry that even that part is not given yet, right? So providing accurate um, uh, estimates or predictions on carbon emissions um, will be the first step to enrich the information their uh, end consumer has, a traveler has, uh, to make an educated decision on the next journey. Right? And this can be either to opt for um, a more efficient plane, but uh, this can also be something like a choice, oh, I'd rather go by train, which takes me maybe one or two hours uh, uh, longer to get from A to B. However, it cuts emissions into half, yeah. quarter, or even less. Um, so the first two layers or the first two steps are really providing the information in a meaningful and um, tangible way. The second step then uh, is that the traveler or the consumer uh, needs to avoid as much of the carbon emissions possible. And then the third step really is um, we need to come to a realization that there always will be, to some extent, carbon emissions left. right? And um, at that point, and only in that context, carbon reduction or carbon compensation uh, can be a very impactful um, mean to um, to reduce the rest. Uh, so this can be in the aviation industry. This can be sustainable aviation fuel, for instance, um, or direct carbon air capturing, which is more industry agnostic, I believe. Um, but those are the three main steps uh, to involve anyone out there, um, and where you also are as a uh, as a big company as a carrier so whether this is an airline or it is an ota so um uh, the the online travel uh, uh companies um the travel man- travel management companies uh, which are rather focused on the um uh, business travel where they need to provide also tools so it becomes um an active decision criterion and a tool to reduce and avoid carbon emissions 
And and that I mean that makes total sense. And I guess within travel, it's uh, much easier to draw like a direct link between the the individual consumer, that one flight, and the impact they have. How do you see it working? Something like transport, where let's say it's transporting food goods around the world. I don't know avocados from South America to to England. You're transporting hundreds or thousands of avocados. They're going to end up in a supermarket somewhere. Obviously, it's a lot harder then to tie it to the to the end consumer. Like, is is there anything that can be done at a consumer layer when it comes to more the transport and logistics sectors? Yeah. So um, on both sides, um, uh, travel and logistics, um, there is a bunch of different frameworks by now out there, um, and a lot of that has started with the past uh, building and creating averages and giving proxies basically and over time these models got better and better and better um, and our API for instance is even able to connect to telemetry so basically real time uh, and actual data from whatever trucks you know so where it is really based on um, how much fuel has been consumed on a trip from A to B so the question always is at, at this point, um, how much detail um, is provided in terms of input data um, and how much would it cost you um, as an incremental step to, to get more and more and more accurate until you have real-time data, which is telemetry, right? And um, these prediction models, uh, which we have on the platform and we have I know uh, 50 frameworks and it's constantly growing. Um, they're getting close to reality. It's still predictions, right? But um, in hindsight, you can do a comparison and uh, they come super close. And um, so that applies in the same manner for a passenger being transported by a plane or some goods which are shipped either through sea or by a plane as well or by a lorry. Very cool. Um, and obviously we, we were just talking about kind of the consumer level. If, if we kind of shift it now to like the, the businesses and the companies providing these services, I assume it's the same principles. Like you start with an awareness education, like they start calculating exactly what their emissions are and what, what they're doing. What, what do you feel are like the next steps that will drive the biggest change? Like is it, is it better regulations, legislation to incentivize behaviors? Is it those companies really starting to take seriously the investment in better tech or more efficient ways of doing stuff? cutting down that footprint, et cetera? Yeah. Um, I mean, we have a couple of uh, pressure points which our clients experience, and they're getting bigger and bigger as we speak. Um, one being uh, regulation, you just mentioned it. So uh, there's more and more pressure from that side um, to reduce carbon footprints. And there is um, there's very tangible ways on, especially the travel segment. I think uh, we can uh, we can explore on that one a little bit. Um, to drive that down. So this is about carbon emission policies or sustainability policies, and I, I will um, elaborate on that in a second. Um, that being said, regulatory pressure is not the only pressure, but you will also find um, shareholder pressure, right, where investors want a specific company to operate under a specific standard and therefore also use um, the respective reporting frameworks, um, which uh yeah which need to be set in place and therefore uh, provide numbers and then eventually i think what is also super important to uh to mention here because this is also a driver for change and also a motivation for quite a couple of clients of ours to even engage 
um, is stakeholders. So internal stakeholders such as um, staff where employees say, I don't want to work for a company which is not taking care of or paying attention to um, operating more sustainable and and creating transparency around that. And that is um, maybe the three big factors. So um, how you can, just based off transparency, um, avoid carbon emissions is, for instance, and I was mentioning it earlier, um, sustainability policies. Um, they can work, for instance, that um, uh, each employee has a specific budget and um, that budget uh, cannot be overwritten or um, cannot be exceeded um, over the course of a year. So as an employee, um, you all of a sudden not only have a budget in terms of uh, money to, to travel around the world um, or in terms of days or whatsoever, but all of a sudden there is a new decision criteria, which is carbon emission uh, budget. And you cannot exceed that. And by that, you can step by step um, foster behavior, which is more conscious about travel implications. Um, and through better choices on means of transport, of, um, say, uh, round trips, where you cover a couple of locations in one trip instead of going back and forth every time, and therefore reducing uh, the single legs. Um, all of that drives towards a goal to reduce carbon emissions overall. And um, that is that is good as a tool as long as there is information provided at the point of decision. And that's where Square comes into into game. Yeah, <clears throat> makes total total sense. And I guess the other thing, the other the other kind of like party, if there was that, if I was to add a fourth to that equation, is um, the consumers, the customers. Like, I think anyone yeah. given the choice between two airlines and ones, uh, you know, making some kind of active steps to offset the the impact of that flight for you or with you versus the one that's not doing anything, like that's a that's a major point of like the the customer decision making process as well. Um, right. One one last thing um, I want to ask before we talk about Squake was um, you touched on it earlier, which was um, sustainable aviation fuel SAF, which I think is from what I've, I've read and, and heard you speak about previously, like um, something quite exciting about like sustainability and travel. Can you can you just explain a bit more about what SAF is and, and like what the potential of, of, of this is as well for the industry? Yes. Um, so sustainable aviation fuel is basically from from a chemical point of view, it's identical to uh, the kerosene, which which um, aircrafts are are fueled up with at, at the moment um, the big difference though is that um, and there is different ways to produce sustainable aviation fuel but I will um, I will go into detail of one um, that it doesn't consist of fossil fuels and that is the basis but uh, the basis is basically um, old oils vegetable oils um, used for instance for frying fries um, and there's some some nice uh, advertisement uh, out there uh, displaying such stuff, um, and they get purified eventually, so they get recycled, um, and uh, through a couple of procedures um, uh, to a state of replicating uh, kerosene, um, they save up to eighty percent of carbon emissions. Um, the remainders, so the 20%, mainly stem from um, the fact that at the moment, uh, kerosene can be um, uh, transported through a pipeline system, which is within Europe or under the soil, um, 
whereas sustainable aviation fuel cannot be transported that way. So uh, still, um, there is uh, the, the carbon emissions from this transport from the production lines towards the airports, um, but that can be compensated again by um, overfueling, basically, with sustainable aviation fuel. And, and the reason why this isn't already being used in the, in the industry is, is it so the case of like the, the cost of producing it is still quite high can, compared to like what's traditionally used, but that, that will come down over time and make it more affordable and more accessible. Yes, um, exactly what you said. So um, our big aspiration vision is that um, through connecting demand and supply in this case, um, we also send strong signals towards the industry um, to scale up capacities and therefore drive down costs. So uh, not by any means we are close to a commodity price of sustainable aviation fuel, but I would love to see this over the next decade or 20 years to be um, basically swapping uh, the the ratio and we have more sustainable aviation fuel than uh, kerosene. 100%. That being said, it's a long way. Uh, we're We're at a teeny tiny fraction at the moment of the overall... Uh, demand for kerosene and fossil fuels. Um, but it's a good starting point. Yeah. But like you said, to, to start shifting that balance, you have to show there's the, the demand there for it in the first place, which you, you're going to see easily from Squake. And, and we'll get onto that in a second. Um, cool. Well, that's enough of me quizzing you <laughs> about travel and, and transport, <laughs> Philip. So could you, um, yeah, can you, I, I know you've touched on it a few times, but can you explain and just give an overview of what Squake does? Right. Um, yeah. So at Squake, we are building tech to enable the biggest players in travel and logistics to create carbon emission transparency. And beyond that, uh, through the same technical infrastructure, we are offering uh, meaningful and impactful reduction, such as sustainable aviation fuel, for the carbon emissions, which cannot be avoided in the first place. Um, we're doing this with uh, Basically, the big carriers um, in the travel and transport segment. Yeah, there is um, cool, and, and um, I, I'm always intrigued by like the the kind of early days of of, of a business. And um, like, when did the idea of Squake first come to you? Like, when did the concept of the business first originate? It's fairly simple. Uh, my co-founding partner Dan has been working for Lufthansa Group uh, for five years previous to. Squake. And to our knowledge, the Lufthansa Group was the first airline group worldwide to create carbon emission transparency through an API and beyond that, offering sustainable aviation fuel as a reduction offer. Um, that was highly appreciated to, to put it out flat. Um, and at the same time, there was a bunch of clients and businesses, corporations to um, to approach Lufthansa Group and asking for that kind of solution. Um, and eventually that got us thinking also in the light of um, the, the pressures we were discussing earlier um, around regulatory points, um, shareholders and stakeholders. Um, how can we take this concept of an API providing information and transparency and beyond that reduction and removal offering um, to an industry solution? How can we take this concept from being specific to airlines and one specific airline group towards everything what moves, so all means of transport, and everything what is touched basically by the industry of travel and or logistics? Um, 
And that was basically the beginning of Squake. So um, that was in 2021, uh, where we explored first whether this is feasible and then uh, started Squake as an independently operating company. Nice. And in terms of the um, you know, figuring out if it was feasible or not, what, what were you focused on? Like, were you focused on whether people would actually like pay for this? Were you focused on whether it was technically possible or, or more like the, the kind of the different frameworks and methodologies that already existed and, and finding one that actually was better, more accurate? So two parts of the question, uh, whether people would pay for that. Um, I think this is, um, this is one part where we were very comfortable going into this and diving into how we can create a business model around it because we just knew about the need and the pain non-transparency was creating at the time already and now it's just increasing and beyond that also not having an offering in terms of reduction or removal uh, where avoidance would have been not possible uh, in the first place so um that was that was the get-go where we were pretty sure um that uh we would find a, the right monetization model over time um, and landed with a very good hypothesis very very much in the beginning as we are a b2b business um, b2b2x uh, eventually um, we figured that out fairly quickly um, in terms of tech feasibility so second part of your question um, i think it is very important to understand who your client is and as we are not talking about um, small players but we're literally talking about the biggest players uh, in the respective industries so whether this is hrs whether this is home to go um, whether this is uh, lufthansa group um, they require hardcore tech right uh, in terms of performance but also in terms of uh, data security and uh, certifications so feasibility was proven fairly early I think where um, the big differentiation and the big efforts early, early on in uh, in our company has been put on um, is serving these tech giants and these massive industry leaders uh, with a solution um, which is fully certified, um, fully bulletproof, um, has the highest data security standards um, and delivers at the performance required by them. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io, where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company in position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess that's removing like all of the the barriers um, to them signing up and wanting to work with you. Um, to dig into like the various different aspects of the platform and how it works, I guess, first of all, the, the kind of like methodology and framework you use for calculating the emissions is super important. And I understand this is a big pain point in in industries in, pos- in general, because there's such variance between different frameworks and, and what they come out with as calculations. In terms of how you've built yours, have you built your own custom one or have, have you taken the best of existing frameworks um, and, and it's like a combination of those? Like, can you explain a bit about how you've created your framework and, and how it differs in terms of like accuracy and consistency to 
what else is out there? Yeah, super important question. And um, the short answer is Squake is an infrastructure. So there is multiple players out there being experts in creating new uh, calculation methodologies. Um, there's there's left and right frameworks which are either required by uh, from from a regulatory perspective or from um, from other bodies such as shareholders and stuff. Um, and our responsibility basically is to have them all available through one source because um, regulatory and other requirements from external change constantly. So um, we have bodies such as COP27, then COP28, and so on and so forth, um, where uh, it is a lot about um, changing requirements and changing views on, and by the way, in a, in a good way, changing. Um, but that always entails that um, our clients need to change frameworks, that they need to change operations, uh, and they don't have the capacity nor time or expertise for that. So this is basically then funneled through our infrastructure where we have everything available on the market pretty much um, at their hand, and they just have to make a decision. Everything obviously is certified and bulletproof. Um, but in regard to your question, how accurate are all these models and are we um, providing our own? We are using the most reputable frameworks from external. Um, and some of them, it's really interesting because some of them are super much in, into detail. Uh, however, clients of ours don't choose them, but they chose uh, maybe some older ones for the reason that they have to deliver reports in a specific manner. Right. So um, sometimes they also take a hybrid approach, which is uh, possible through our infrastructure. Um, and that is exactly what I meant with catering towards their technical needs. We can provide both at the same time. Um, in terms of own calculations, uh, we don't do own calculations as such, but uh, we are enriching specific frameworks um, so they get more accurate. Got it. Yeah. And um, I guess looking at this from a, um, a consumer perspective, so if I'm flying with a carrier or an airline which uses Squake, um, I'm, you know, I book my flight from X to Y, um, at what point do I start to see, like, what, I would not necessarily would even know it was Squake, but like, at what point would I see the options of like the, you know, calculating this is the, the impacts of this, this flight and like, here are the options to offset and, and like, what kind of options do you offer to people at that point mm -hmm. in terms of, um, like mitigating the impact of that flight? Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, a, a very simple case is just for an airline booking flow where it would be, um, I want to go from A to B, Frankfurt to New York. And, um, here's my options, right? And usually what you would have is a couple of options for a respective day. Um, there might be different flight model, uh, aircraft models, um, going, going there. So therefore you have an indication. Okay. This is a more modern and this is an older aircraft. Um, but what we do is we add this layer of this flight, uh, in this booking class with that aircraft type, um, would emit such and such carbon emissions. Um, so there is the first layer of, of decision making then as well. You can opt for the more modern aircraft versus the uh, the older one. Um, and through that, you can reduce uh, or avoid a couple of uh, kilograms of emissions. Um, 
But beyond that, um, you'll be taken to the checkout uh, where you can um, eventually reduce the remaining emissions through um, the offering which we have in our API. So this would be sustainable aviation fuel, but this can also be other means of compensation um, where it is about removal or um, uh, direct carbon air capturing, for instance. And are those chosen by Squake or are they chosen by the the, the airline or like the carrier? Um, it's a combination of both most of the times. Um, there is That is the simple uh, case. Um, the more sophisticated case, I believe, is when you look at a TMC, so a travel management company, um, scheduling and planning and, and booking for a business traveler, right? Because um, for them, there is a request. I need to go from, let's say, Hamburg to Munich. And there, all of a sudden, transparency doesn't only become an information, but it can become a tool. So sustainability policy, where um, the travel agent then goes through the list of available routes and available means of transport. And um, if the, the traveler uh, decides to go for maximum emission, uh, 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 the, the least emission, um, he'll end up or she, uh, she would end up um, booking a train, which takes longer, however, cuts emission into a fraction of what it would take for, for a plane. Right. Um, the same can obviously apply, um, in terms of accommodation where you can book, um, a, a non-sustainable hotel or you go for one which takes, uh, the, the responsibility around sustainability very serious, um, has an echo label, for instance, um, has, uh, multiple streams to reduce the carbon emissions, uh, at, at its own capacity and therefore, um, uh, can get higher in the search results in the, in, in the ranking and therefore um, ends up in that very trip. Right. And, and, and in terms of how it works on the logistics trans, transport side of things, is, is there a, a, a com, like a, um, a, a comparison to the traveler in that aspect? It's like whoever's booking the, the produce being moved from whatever country to their, their country, whoever booking that, they have the same experience of being able to calculate their, their emissions and then like the offsetting options as well. Right. Um, so it, to be honest, it's, it's fairly comparable. Um, because, uh, what you have as, as SAF for aircrafts, you have as HVO, so biofuels, um, for trucks, for instance. Um, and the same mechanism in terms of reduction can, can apply, um, as well as the calculation side of things, right? So there's, um, a, a bunch of frameworks out there, um, which allow for, um, for accurate calculations and therefore predictions on, on carbon emissions. Um, and beyond that, you can reduce uh, whatever is left, what you can, cannot avoid. Super interesting. And then um, in terms of your revenue model, Philip, is it a case that it's just like a very normal SaaS model like the, that the businesses have when they sign up to work with Squake? Yeah. So um, just what you said, it's um, we're, we're charging a SaaS fee for accessing our services and then um, it's a transactional model. And uh, I don't know if this is uh, something you could do right now or something you plan in the future or, or not at all, but um, obviously in this, in what you described in the more um, simple travel instance, like it's the, it's the traveler, it's the consumer that's, that's 
um, paying for like the offsetting or, or like whatever the gap is that they're, they're, they're the one taking the cost of that. Is there an option on the platform for the providers, the airlines, the carriers, the transport providers to offset some of the impacts themselves as well? Or is that not part of it at the moment or, and, and not part of the plan? Yeah. Um, so first of all, we obviously prefer insetting instead of offsetting. Sorry. Um, and, uh, no, 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 and, and there is also offsetting out there. So, um, but what we try to, to foster here is, uh, reduction, right? And, um, it, it, that may be just, uh, upfront, but, um, we do have clients already now who either take on parts of the cost themselves, um, or even cover for the full. So, uh, that is part of our flexible structure where, um, the infrastructure can adapt to each of the client's needs. Um, and that can also entail that there is not even an optional um, opt-in or opt-out in terms of compensations and reduction, but um, it is just built into the actual product. So the core service of a client transferred from A to B um, will always have this attachment of the reduction because that's part of their value proposition. That is super cool. Yeah, I was wondering if there was that kind of option built in, but that that's like everything they could possibly want on the scale of <laughs> of optionality. Um, amazing. And then I was just going to chat to you about funding because I know you've recently closed out your seed round. So huge congratulations. Indeed. Never easy. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to ask you, what was that experience like? What, what was the, the best and, and worst thing about fundraising? Mm, I think the best thing about fundraising is um to get back to work when it's over <laughs> and um that that also leads to the the challenge of fundraising which is you have a business to steer and that needs to happen every day at the same time so um you have two jobs in in that phase and uh, it, it, that is um that is okay for some months but it's certainly not something uh, <laughs> very sustainable in terms of work-life balance. Fair. And, and, and you know, what, what's that funding being used for? Like, what's that going to allow Squake to do over the next couple of years? Um, yeah, so first of all, uh, we, we've been very careful with uh, selecting the right investors, and we, uh, we're super happy with the team which, which joined us. Um, Squake has a bunch of large clients and uh watch the news uh, there's a lot coming up in in the next weeks and months um and they're just about to launch um as well as we have a, a proper pipeline to be served so um there's both on the tech but also on the commercial side um uh, some some very important team additions uh, coming up um so the funding will mainly be used to scale the tech team uh and uh the vital parts of the commercial team Cool. And, and next, I was going to just chat to you a little bit about your your personal journey as like a founder. Yeah. Um, this is like your first time founding a business. And I just wondered, like, when you look back, which of your previous jobs, previous roles, like, best prepared you for like life as a founder? Mm, to be honest, I think it's the combination of the experience so far. Uh, I pretty much always knew that at some point in time, I would I would found my own company and eventually it is a combination of when have you see when you have seen enough um and you learn from other people's uh, successes but also from failures maybe even more important um 
so you feel well equipped to to do to do this by yourself. And then the second part, uh, which to me was also super crucial, is um, not to build yet another business, but um, have something where there's obviously a viable uh, business opportunity and a large business opportunity. And um, I believe the pain of of this industry and uh, of our clients is massive. So there has to be a solution in place. Um, and that is the business side of things. But on the other hand, um, I also really wanted to do something which which has to do with fighting some of the challenges uh, we face as a society. And um, I guess bringing all of that together, experience, um, right moment in terms of pain in the market and, and providing a solution for that and um, finding um, a topic which you can really commit to because it's not just business, but it is also something impact and meaningful that that was quick. No, absolutely. Um, and, and it kind of ties into my next question. I was going to ask you like, what's the hardest part of the job? Because like you said, you know, it, you, you need to have something that's a viable business I'm a big believer in that you should really have like impact business models. So for every pound, euro, dollar that you make, that will do something positive and good in the world. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. So like, what would you say is like the hardest part of your, of, of, of the day for you, the hardest part of the job? Um, I think for me, it would be probably focus by, by all means. Um, there is so much you have to decide and so much you, you need to take care of and it's very important to put the right order and priority to to all these tasks um and at the same and that, that is basically the internal challenge um which i think is manageable right um you you learn to do this um over a long period of time and um that is also part of the experience i was referring to earlier at some point in time you feel equipped um the other part is external focus. So we're in a market which really just started, right? Um, there is a massive pain uh, and that needs to be solved. And left and right, you'll find um, potential clients requiring a little bit of a different story, requiring a little bit of a different solution. Um, so it is super important to be crystal clear on what core problem do you want to solve? Um, and then expand over time. Very good advice. And um, I guess kind of linked to that again, that you, you, there's so much you could be doing and it's sometimes really hard to switch off, um, not just as a founder, as anyone working in a business, but especially as a founder, there's always something yeah. you could be spending your time and energy thinking about. How have you created like the right boundaries to make sure that, you know, you're looking after yourself, that all the stuff outside of work gets enough time and attention as, uh, alongside the, the kind of like startup aspects as well? Yeah. Um, so I think throughout the week, um, trying to, to keep solid working hours, but, um, to be honest, uh, what needs to be done needs to be done. Um, and, uh, that is fun. So it is more some, some consciousness around the surroundings, uh, the relationships, the friends and so on and so forth, which also cannot be completely, uh, squared out of the equation. Um, I think sports are super important to get a clear head. Um, I think, uh, or I, I really believe that uh, separating business and, and private time um, is, is a massive driver to, to a solid work-life balance. Um, 
me personally, uh, in, in my relationship, my girlfriend is also a founder. Um, so there's very strict rules around uh, holidays um, because otherwise you will never switch off, um, which then eventually in the long run will, will not lead to uh, me being a good leader, nor CEO, nor um, visionary for, uh, for the matters of Squake. Lots, lots of good points there. And, and my, my final section of the podcast is chatting normally about kind of like how you go about building a, a tech for good, uh, an impact business. And I wondered if you could share like one thing about Squake culture that you feel is like unique to you that, that you're proud of. I think for us, the, the most important thing is the team. Uh, we wouldn't have gotten nowhere near where we stand now without the amazing talent and people we've, um, uh, we've had us joining. Um, so therefore it is super important to have a culture of fit when it comes to the, the type of people we, you, you want to have around you and you, um, you work with. Um, obviously, uh, that is just one part. So that is the glue. Um, and that also supports, especially on, on times where there's a lot of stress or, where um, things need to be done, uh, which are highly complex uh, in, in short amount of time. Um, that said, um, obviously it is super important that everyone has is an expert in in the domain um, he or she works in and and is mainly dedicated on. So um, that is the, the fine balance between having somebody. Um, on board who is expert in the subject matter, but then also is kind of a generalist in terms of supporting each other when it comes to these cross-functional uh, topics. And especially in the beginning um, of a company, you don't have like super clear departments, but everyone uh, has a center of gravity um, and needs to expand every now and then left and right to support one another. Definitely. Yeah. You, you need that, that flexibility in the early days as well, as well as like the ability of mindset in, in every single person. Like you just cannot hide anywhere in the early days of a startup. Um, when, when it comes to building that initial team, like it's hard, right? As a startup, you have no brand name. Um, you know, the founders may have some kind of like personal profile, but a lot of time they don't in the early days. You don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of runway. How do you like, what do you think are like the key things to get right when it comes to attracting these great people? Cause I agree, you need that, that core team to be like excellent, but like, how do you, how do you attract excellent people? Um, yeah, so super challenging, uh, in the beginning. And, um, to be honest, especially in the early days, uh, the only thing you have is your own reputation. There is, there is a brand name, but nobody knows that. Um, so therefore the, the early days of, of hiring work often through the personal network, right? Um, and that gets you to a specific point, um, where you build up a company to an extent that you have some logos on the wall and you have some press and you have some funding news. Uh, and that raises then attention to, uh, uh, Additional people were maybe not in your direct network. That being said, um, especially in Berlin, um, it's a very close community. So therefore, uh, through one or two peer contacts, everyone knows everyone. So referencing is, is quite a good job here. <laughs> um, and that attracts then uh, talent from external. And uh, obviously also talking about seniority over time. 
um, you are just required to look for for um, very specific expertises in the market and the likelihood that you can surf that through your own network as a founder is is getting slimmer and slimmer the more you grow up. And um, to focus, I guess, on tech hiring for a moment, because like, I, I, I looked at the team, I think you've hired across pretty much all, all the different kind of functions, divisions, but obviously being a very tech heavy product, there's a, there's a core element of tech within the team. In, in your opinion, what, what makes a great software engineer? Like outside of the, the very specific technical skills and languages of frameworks, like are there, are there common out, like common things you look for in, in any software engineer that you hire? Because I think it's a, a question I get asked a lot by founders is like, yeah, what makes great software engineer in the early days? What should I be hiring for? Yeah. So the expert to answer that question would be my co-founder, <laughs> partner, Dan. Um, but, um, on, uh, from the commercial side of things, uh, what I really appreciate and what I, what I actually appreciate about our tech team a lot is that, um, there is obviously this expertise in mastering the skill within um, the tech domain. However, uh, curiosity around how it applies on the business, on the product, in the field, when it comes to sales, uh, customer relations, and so on and so forth. So um, looking beyond the, the, the code um, is maybe a little too, too abstract, but um, having this curiosity, how does the product eventually end up um, at the client and how is it perceived um, having their active feedback loop also through the product managers and so on. Um, that is what I really, really appreciate from commercial point of view um, about our tech team. And uh, that is, that is also my advice to, to anyone from a commercial perspective, uh, founding a company, um, look for people uh, on the tech side who are curious about, how, how the product translates into action. I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, as someone who's worked in tech hiring for like 13 years, I'd say I call that like, um, like having a product mindset as a software engineer. It's like that awareness of how this would increase value to the users or the business in some way. It's just thinking, like you said, beyond the, that particular feature that you're building or service. Um, but those people are real like accelerators for your team <clears throat> and, and the product. Um, if they can think in that way. So yeah, great advice. Um, Cool. Well, Phil, I think that's pretty much it. So look, it's been such a pleasure having the show and chatting with you. Um, it sounds like you've got some big stuff coming out, so we'll all have to keep an eye out. Um, where, where is best to follow Squake on socials for, for these announcements or just in general? Um, take a look at LinkedIn. I think that's that's the core source. Nice. Cool. Well, I'll make sure that there's a link in the footnotes to the LinkedIn page. Um, but yeah, look, thanks again for chatting with me and um, have a great week. Thank you so much. You too. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.